Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Morning, everyone. Hi, I'm DK. If you can, please stand as we read today's scripture. It is from Matthew 7, verses 28 to 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. You can be seated. FDR, when he was president, he hated uh, steak diplomatic dinners. He said, because the experience was just so superficial. He could never have a real conversation, and people just told him what he wanted to hear all the time. So one night, he decided that he'd had enough of it. And everybody who walked through the receiving line, he decided that he was going to say something shocking. So as they came through, everybody was shaking his hand, and he just said, uh, or people came through and said, Mr. President, you're just doing such a fine job. And he just said, I murdered my grandmother today. And everyone still walked through and said, you're doing a fine job, Mr. President. With the exception of one person who said, I'm sure she deserved it. (laughs) Matthew records this majestic sermon from Jesus that we've been looking at since September. And he gives these comments at the end of the sermon that gives the crowd's reaction to the whole thing. Why do this? I mean, nobody walks up to a Monet and tries to touch it up a little bit or sees a Spielberg film and wants to add uh, a last scene on top of a masterpiece that's been produced or a great novel and then write an appendix to it. But what Matthew's doing here is he's actually giving us an amazing point. He's saying there is a way to hear this sermon. How do you know you've heard? How do you know you have heard what Jesus says in the whole sermon? And I think the answer to that is you'll come with the right conclusions. And if you've heard Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, I think you'll conclude three things. You'll conclude that life is upside down. Two, there is no one like him. But three, that he is for us. If you've heard, I think you'll conclude that. First, if you've heard him, you'll conclude that life is upside down. Look, if you've not read the Sermon on the Mount, I encourage you to go back and do it. It's not a long read, but it's really Jesus' manifesto. Not on how you get saved, but what does a saved life look like? What is life in his kingdom going to look like? What is a disciple in a simple uh, description? I mean, it's full of famous lines like, be poor in spirit. Uh, Love your enemies, store up treasure in heaven, do not be anxious, judge not lest you be judged. It's full of of wise, wise ways of living, life wise teaching. And what should strike you in the beginning is how utterly countercultural it is. How Jesus' way of life is utterly the opposite of the way the world works. If you want to succeed in the world, there are values that everybody lives by, that everybody walks on, and when you get into Jesus' way of life, it is almost the exact opposite of that. 
uh, Duke professor Stanley Hauerhaus, he described it this way. He said, when Jesus called his society together and gave its members a new way of life to live, he gave them a new way to deal with offenders by forgiving them. He gave them a new way to deal with violence by suffering. He gave them a new way to deal with money by sharing it. He gave them a new way to deal with problems of leadership by drawing on the gift of every member, even the most humble. He gave them a new way to deal with corrupt society by building a new order, not smashing the old one. He gave them a new pattern of relationship between man and woman, between parent and child, between master and slave, in which was made concrete a radical new vision of what it means to be a human person. He gave them a new attitude towards the state and even the enemy nation of Rome itself. Consider how radically different that is from the way everybody typically lives life. And that when you hear him, what you ought to think is every time he's driving home something, that this is calling me to walk away from the values of my culture. For example, he says, be poor in spirit. Think how different that is in our life. If I let my guard down and people see me, no one will love me. Love your enemies. What do we see? I, you stand for that? I want to cancel you. want nothing to do with you. Store up treasure in heaven. If you have more than me, I'll be jealous and not like you as much. Don't be anxious. I mean, we pretend like you don't care about something unless you're anxious. You ought to walk away thinking that the values of this world do not work and hold water. And in fact, when you look at the values of this world, the Sermon on the Mount ought to be a whisper in the back of your arm saying, these are lies. In 2004, the Ukrainian election uh, was uh, being run by uh, Viktor Yushchenko. He was challenging the, the, the state-run uh, party that had been in power forever. And he had a comfortable lead through the middle of the day. But on election day, uh, that evening, the state-run television reversed the whole thing with fraud. And even though Yushchenko had uh, successfully, comfortably led in the polls, the state-run television that night said, Yushchenko has challenged this, the uh, empowered uh, party and has resoundly lost and failed. But what they failed to realize is that on Ukrainian TV, in the bottom right-hand corner for the hearing impaired, there is always a translation provided for the words for those who can't hear through somebody doing sign language. And a brave woman that night, while they're reporting that the election had been lost by Yushchenko, she says, do not listen to anything they're saying. These are all lies. And all of the deaf people who had watched it and understood her sign language began to call their friends and text people. Soon journalists got a hold of it, and within a week and a half, a million people showed up to the capital in Kiev and demanded a new election. Because one woman had the brave audacity to risk her life and say, everything they're telling you is a lie. Like, you, you begin to hear Jesus 
when you look at the natural way people live life and think it's a lie, and you begin to see all of his values, you die to live, you give to become rich, you serve to become powerful is the way of life, and it's upside down. And when you start to live that way, you know you've heard him. Secondly, though, you know you've heard him when you conclude that there's no one like him. See, one of the most pressing things with the Sermon on the Mount is the question, why listen to this hard teaching? Why in the world should you begin to live your life upside down? Look, there's, there's probably no text in uh, all the Bible that non-religious people tried to glean from and find value in than the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you're like this or you know somebody like this where people say, uh, I don't like the church, I don't like religion, uh, Christians are harsh, but I like Jesus, I like His teaching, and they're almost always referring to the Sermon on the Mount and some of these things like be poor in spirit or do not store up treasure in heaven, or love your enemies. But what Matthew's comments do is that protects you from making this enormous mistake of thinking you can listen to the Sermon on the Mount and take this teaching of Jesus and sprinkle it into your ongoing secular life. Look what Matthew records for us. In verse 28 it says, when they heard him, when he taught, the crowds were, it says, astonished by him. The word for astonished there is the Greek word ekpleso. It means to be struck in a unique way with no precedent. John Sadat suggests it means to be dumbfounded. That as he spoke, they were just blown away. Now, why were they blown away? It says in verse 29, because he taught with an unprecedented authority. See, the way that the scribes and the teachers of the law taught is they were well-read, they were very well aware of how uh, different communities had interpreted the Bible and the commentaries that existed in the communities for centuries on how you should understand this and how you should take this and how you should apply this, and they had all of the teaching thought, and they would just quote people, and they would refer to these texts and refer to these commentaries, and it would be passed around, and they spoke with sort of a scholarly authority. And Jesus comes along and says things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. A.B. Bruce, he mentions, he says, the teachers of the law spoke by authority, but Jesus spoke with it. And he did not come to pick up on other people's ideas on the text. He came to speak his own. And when they heard it, they said, who is this? Here's what I have always imagined it, 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 it to look like. Um, do you remember that movie like 20 years ago or, uh, or more than 20 years ago, Goodwill Hunting with Matt Damon, where he's uh, this genius who's working at MIT in Boston just as a janitor, but he's sort of an undiscovered genius because he's had a hard life. And uh, one night, he and Ben Affleck are going to go hang out at a Harvard bar, and um, they're sitting there uh, just hanging out as guys, and Ben Affleck's talking to this girl. He's trying to, to be flirty and cute. And this guy who's a Harvard uh, student comes up and just starts making fun of him. 
and, uh, and mocking Ben Affleck and, and trying to say how stupid he is. And he starts kind of quoting some stuff. And, uh, and Matt Damon walks up because he's a genius. And in the middle of the guy's quote, he cuts him off. He goes, you got that from Vickers, right? Essex, work in Essex County, page 98, right? Yeah, I read that too. Were you going to plagiarize the whole thing for us? Do you have any thoughts of your own on this matter? Or do you, is that your thing? You just come into a bar, you read some obscure passage, then pretend and you pawn it off as your own, as your own idea, just to impress some girl and embarrass my friend? And then everybody in the bar just looks at him like, who are you? That's what the crowds did. Is they just said, who, who can talk like this? Who speaks like this? See, even the prophets said, thus saith the Lord. But Jesus comes and says, truly I say to you. See, what, what Matthew's comments do for us is it makes this incredibly strong point that if you try to find value in what he says and not value in the one who's saying it, you've missed the forest for the trees. That what Jesus won't let you do is follow his teaching and not follow him. Dale Bruner, a professor at Fuller Seminary, he comments this way, what Matthew believes of greatest importance at the end of this sermon is the impact of Jesus himself. Of made importance is not even the content of the sermon, but the one who gave it. See, Jesus believes himself to be someone else. Who, like God, should talk to this? See, at the end of this sermon, what the main point is, is not what even when you will do this material, but what will you do with this man? Almost every religious teacher is famous for what they said and how they inspired their believers. But none of them ever encourage you to worship them. Jesus is like the only religious founder who welcomed it and encouraged it. There's an amazing place where this is so sharply drawn out for us. In John chapter 12, what happens in the scene is that they're gathered around Jesus and Mary takes a jar of oil. It was probably her life savings. And what even uh, Mark suggests from his account is that she sort of breaks it open and pours the whole jar on Jesus. And she's anointing him with oil. And Judas, one of the disciples, stops him and goes, what are we doing here? We should sell some of this oil and take the money and give it to the poor. Now, now, enter into this moment. She's pouring all of this expensive oil on Jesus, and he says, hey, we should do the ethical thing and give some of this money away. Now, think how many people want to take the Sermon on the Mount and say, we can just learn to be an ethical person and love people and love the poor, and that's what makes you a wonderful person in this world. And Judas probably said this, and probably everybody in the room goes, oh, yes, we probably should do that. And Jesus says, no, pour it all on me. 
He says, you will only have me for a little while. You'll have the poor for a lot longer. Now, I want you to think about this. What kind of person says, don't care for the poor, worship me? I'll tell you, you can't listen to that person and just find his teaching valuable. He's either a madman or he is who he says he is, which is God incarnate, come in the flesh, and when you hear him, you're blown away. See, for the Sermon on the Mount, it is altogether possible to read it and to hear it and to come away more religious and less Christian. Here's what I mean. Um, you, when you were a kid, one of the things that you figured out was that if I obey my parents, life is going to be a lot easier. Like, even though I don't like what my parents are saying, I'll just uh, go along with this because it's better than mom and dad being angry and yelling and punishing me for things like that. And so what we actually were doing is we were obeying because we wanted a peace and comfortable life. We didn't want to be under scolding. We didn't want to be grounded. But then when you become a parent, it dawns on you. You know, that when you, when you want your children to obey, it's not just because you want a comfortable and peaceful house, though you do. What you want is a family that loves one another. What you want is to be in good, rich relationships with those people in your life. And what it teaches you is that, look, if obedience is ever to get something else, it's not love. It's using somebody to get what you really want. And what a religious person will do is look at the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and try to use it to get something that you really want, which is probably an admirable or righteous life. But what a Christian does is come to the Sermon on the Mount and be blown away by the teaching, but be utterly astonished on your knees at the one who teaches it. And what it ought to do is that it begins to change your life, and you want to obey and take it in your life, not just so that God will accept you, but because He already does. And you begin to realize that the way of the kingdom, the way that Jesus outlines, the upside-down life is a way for me to beautifully love Him and adore Him and become in greater relationship with Him. And when you begin to think that Jesus is not just useful, but He's beautiful, and you're blown away not just by His teaching, but by Him, that's when you've begun to hear the Sermon on the Mount. See, you've heard it when you think life is upside down, when you think there's no one like Him, but thirdly, you've heard it if you begin to know He is for you. Uh, Virginia Owens, uh, a professor at Texas A&M University, wrote this great article um, about 10 years ago uh, on an assignment she gave to her class, her literature class. She asked them to read the Sermon on the Mount, 
and write an essay on it. And they hated it. Here's what students wrote. I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Another student, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman like that is adultery. To be angry or insult someone is murder. Those are the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statements I have ever heard. Here's what Owens said about her students who gave her more and more comments like that. She said, finally, biblical illiteracy had come to the point in America where people are able to respond to Jesus Christ without filtering him through 2,000 years of cultural haze. She's saying, the students who came away going, this is miserable. This is ridiculous. She said, they were honest. They read it. They began to sort of hear, but here's what they didn't hear, and here's what you must hear. See, if you think the one giving it is against you, you will hear it just like those students and think, this is impossible. This is outrageous. Who could ever ask us of human beings? But you must hear this sermon as the one giving it is not just prescribing the way of the kingdom, but as the one who's able to bestow the blessings of the kingdom. He begins it by saying, blessed are you who are like this. He doesn't say God will bless you. He's saying I will bless you. If you come to the Sermon on the Mount and you have to deal with Jesus and you think what it is is the ability for you to measure up to it, it will crush you. It will either turn you into the most religious, angry, judgmental person who's trying to stand on your righteousness over other people to make yourself feel better about how short you're actually following, or you'll just totally run away from it because you think he's against you. But friends, If you want to be a Christian, you must read it knowing he is for you. He said in this sermon, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Which means when he gives the whole thing to you, he's not dropping it off and saying, I'll be back in 10 years, you better get it right. He's saying, do you know that I'm going to live this whole thing for you? In your inability to live up to it, I'll die for that. So that what happens in the gospel is that you get united to him by faith. And the life, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus lived, God looks at the accredited life that Jesus gives to you by faith, and God looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant who lived the Sermon on the Mount. And all of the penalty and all of the failure that you and I have for our inability to live it, that's what the cross did. Is it paid for that? See, ethical teaching, Buddha, his last words were strive without ceasing. Jesus Christ, it is finished. Because the sermons he gives... He gives with the knowledge that you must know He is for you. And He has completely done it 
which makes you able to be united to him and to begin to live in it. One of the most amazing stories um, in our culture in the last 30 years was the, um, the father-son relationship of Dick and Rick uh, Hoyt. Uh, Rick was a son who was born with severe cerebral palsy. And Dick was uh, heartbroken to think he'd never have much of a communication or relationship with his son. But uh, desperate to communicate with him, he built this computer system with some engineers and designed a way for Rick to be able to communicate with his father through head tilts. And they knew that he could communicate and knew what was going on because there was a Boston Bruins game on and he communicated cheers and excitement when the Bruins won. So as they began to communicate, uh, Rick learned about some sort of race that was happening on a charity for one of their family friends. And he said, I want to race in that. And Dick thought, well, how in the world is this going to happen? So what happened was uh, he put his son uh, in, in some sort of cart, and Dick just pushed him, and they ran the 5K. And afterwards, Rick told his dad, he said, when I was running with you, I didn't feel like I was handicapped anymore. So what happened over the next 30 years of their life is that Dick and Rick, they did 85 marathons and a dozen triathlons. The whole time, Dick is carrying his son, pushing him through this whole thing. And here's what's amazing. Every single time they registered for the race, they do it under the son's name, Rick Hoyt. So when you see the results, it's as if the son raced the whole thing. Here's why I tell you this, because when you get to God's presence in glory, if he looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant, I don't think you're gonna hear that and go, yup. You know it. I think you'll finally have an amazing moment where you go, me? Me? Really? And you will look over at Jesus and whatever crown you're given, you will fling it and just say all the glory to him all the praise to him. He did it all. I just lived in him. And you will be utterly astonished by everything he did, everything he said, and who he was. You may not be now, but you will be then. And that is how you hear the Sermon on the Mount. Let me pray. Our Father, This teaching, it's either miserable or it's the new way to life. Lord, I pray that the gospel would ring loud on our soul. It would be bright and majestic so that we could hear this and we could take it into our lives and we could live new ways. Lord, would you enable us through the power of your Holy Spirit 
as we take this meal, as we take this supper, Lord, would it seal the good news of the gospel on our lives so that we can hear this, embrace it, and live in the new way of the kingdom. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.